You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 19th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Russia cracks down further on Ukraine, even as cracks emerge around its other borders. Japan grows ever less interested in pretending that it isn't a serious military power, and it's official. Santa Claus is dead. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alonia Hlivko and James Rogers will discuss all the day's big stories. We'll hear from the fair, which is hoping to be the new pinnacle of Parisian art shows, and we'll have more on today's sad news about Father Christmas. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Alona Livko, political consultant and former local Ukrainian MP, and by James Rogers, Associate Professor of International Journalism at City University of London. Hello to you both. Hi, Andrew. Good evening. Um, In place of the usual jovial introductory banter, we do need to look briefly uh, at today's ongoing circus in Westminster. The news within the last hour or so is that Suella Braverman, who has been Home Secretary for like 15 minutes, um, has resigned for reasons which are unclear and disputed. Various versions of events are circulating and doubtless something resembling the truth will emerge in due course. But um, James, first of all, seriously, how much longer are you giving Liz Truss at this point? Probably a little while, all things considered. I mean, not as long as I would have given her when she first became Prime Minister, which hasn't seen that long ago. Um, it's, it's, it's remarkable it seems, how rapidly it's, like it's all fallen not apart. It's very long ago and a very long time ago. It does. I, I think, um, I mean, as you know, under the uh, laws of this country, we have to have a general election sometime in the next 24 months. It's unusual to have an election in the winter, so I think we can assume that the maximum period is probably the summer of 2024, but it seems almost very, very difficult to believe that this government can last that long at this stage. All that said, all that said, they've got a parliamentary majority still of around 80, and the legislation needed for a general election would require at least some of them to vote to put their own seats at risk, and given the very poor showing this government's got in the opinion polls, you have to wonder how many of them will be willing to do that at any time in the next 18 months. Well, on the subject of that parliamentary majority, there are reports, well, it's not reports, it's confirmed, they've said so out loud, at least three Tory MPs that I can see so far have said they will vote against the government in a vote uh, on fracking due in the Commons later tonight, none of which, um, Alona, is terrific for the Prime Minister's authority. And we've talked a lot before about how important it was for Ukraine, especially in the early stages of this war, to have such a a visible um, and adamant ally as the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, as then was. When you look at what is besetting Liz Truss now, do you think she's also diminished on the world stage? Is she still a figure that is taken seriously overseas? Well, I think, sadly, she's now losing her credibility with great speed, uh, the credibility that she was lacking here domestically to begin with. And now, since I'm working in Westminster in public affairs, I was talking to my colleagues discussing the crumbling new government, and all I could say is, you Brits just can't sit still. (laughs) 
Um, obviously, she never had the support of MPs um, anywhere near the support that Rishi Sunak had, but she did get the majority within the party. And just imagining that you would have to go through that election process all over again, all the hastings and, and voting and just disrupt the country yet again and stall all the necessary changes that need to be made immediately heading into an extremely difficult winter with the cost of living crisis, with the energy crisis, with the ongoing war in Ukraine. And mind you that she still hasn't had the chance to properly talk to Zelensky. They've had one introductory talk, as far as I know, from the Ukrainian side, where he's congratulated her on being in the post. And yet no strategic decisions or discussions has been made. And that obviously affects the whole effort, not just for Ukraine, but generally for Europe and for the future of this war and the outcome. And, and we're about to enter a very difficult stage because the UK was the closest ally of Ukraine and now it's up in the air. Well, let's look now properly at Ukraine. Russia appears to be in the process of removing people from Kherson, the only major Ukrainian city Russia has captured since launching its attempted invasion eight months ago. According to Russian-installed local authorities, some 50 to 60,000 civilians are to be shifted across the Dnieper River in anticipation, according to Russia, of a Ukrainian offensive aimed at retaking the city. Elsewhere, more than a 1,000 Ukrainian towns and cities have been blacked out for some of the last few days following massive Russian missile and drone strikes on energy infrastructure. Um, Alona, before we get on to that, uh, what I don't think we've talked about on air before, but we have certainly talked about off air, uh, is that your brother uh, is among the many Ukrainian men who volunteered uh, at the start uh, of this conflict in February. He is, as I understand it, back for a bit on holiday he is yes and and that's the reason for my elevated mood <laughs> especially with all the entertainment in westminster um he's back home for 10 days um which is a brief holiday for him and after that he is going to stay in the west mm -hmm. for a rotation so he's not going to be at the immediate front line um in the midst of action um, but he did tell me very interesting things and where they left it. First of all, he's happy to be home, but then he feels completely almost disconcerted with the fact that he's been withdrawn from the active theater of war. He was telling me about how they've captured Liman, how uh, they went against the whole front line in the northeast, and that he was really actually looking forward to going liberate Lysychansk. That was the next target for their unit. And he was saying to me yesterday, well, now we're not involved in that. That's someone else. But we know the area. We know what to do with it. So the spirit that he's got after five months being on the front line has just surprised me even more. I mean, I keep hearing from many people that Ukrainians are resilient, that there is general fatigue among civilians, about, amongst women, families who are losing mm. many of their loved ones. But the guys on the front line, the military, the soldiers, there is no sense of not giving up, but not even getting tired of that. They're willing to go all the way through. And when I asked him about the South and Kherson, whether because um, there was an article by FT saying that Kherson could be captured by Ukrainians as soon as next week, which is probably mm. the pretext or the reason for this deportation of people in Kherson. I asked him if he thought that that was plausible at all. And the answer was, of course, we're going to get it. I'm not sure about a week. 
Um, I'm not sure how the operations are laid out because he wasn't part of that unit, but he was determined that Kherson was the next goal and Ukrainians are going for it. Just to follow that up quickly, do you get the sense, and I think you've already partially answered this question, that your brother uh, and his comrades, uh, people who, like your brother, were not soldiers before this started or had any particular inclination in that direction, do you think they've surprised themselves? I think they have. And just, first of all, yes, my brother was never in the military. Usually you have to go through your two-year conscription in the army mm. when you're in the university, do some service. Then it got cut down to a year, eventually six months. He never done that because he's moved uh, to the U.S., for studying and then he stayed there for 10 years so he had no military experience whatsoever but seeing him now and just speaking to him on the phone I can see a completely different man in front of me um, I was telling James before we went on air that he speaks differently he conducts himself differently there's a structure to him he's now a proper military man with with the goal with the vision for his country with the willingness to to liberate it and to serve alongside his comrades who were never military as well it is going to be fascinating to see what that generation make of ukraine out the other end of this which will hopefully be sooner rather than later Indeed. But, but james to look at the stories emerging today these uh, deportations as Alena correctly characterized them there has been i think a widespread misuse of the word evacuation in a lot of media this is not new tactics from russia is it this is a time-served russian weapon of war that's right and you wonder what's going to happen to these people and how voluntarily they are leaving. I mean, obviously, if they think anyone living in a city uh, that is likely to become a battleground may take the opportunity to leave if they uh, have the chance to do so. But this seems to be rather systematic, the way that it's being portrayed in Russian state media and the way that the Russian uh, imposed officials there are talking about it. And I think there's a very important point here about the, the Russian home propaganda front too, because they're trying to, again, you know, this was one of the pretexts for starting the war in the first place, that there were people uh, in the east of the country who are somehow under threat from the Ukrainian uh, army who are going to come and attack them, and therefore they had to be moved. And this has been used right throughout the war. And and we see this continuing. How convincing this continues to be after so long is another question. But the, the Russian authorities clearly, as they have done right throughout this war, uh, alongside their military efforts, can, keeping the propaganda bolstered too. Uh, Alona, what, what are you hearing from inside Ukraine about the scale uh, of these deportations? Do we have any idea of the numbers of people involved already? I think so far, according to Ukrainian uh, sources, it's been up to 60,000 people. But of course, it's very difficult to actually count the exact number because Ukrainian authorities haven't been a part of that for such a long time. You don't really know what's actually going on on the occupied territories. Mm. It's, it's very hard to tell. But we've seen those examples before. We've seen that uh, with the quasi-republics even before f February of this year, when Russia started deporting people massively into mainland Russia um, and clearly preparing for all the atrocities that they were getting ready to uh, to descend on Ukraine. And I think that's exactly what they're after now. And just seeing what they're doing with the help of Iranian drones. I think just last night I read the reports that 19 drones were down only over one region in Ukraine, 223 in total. And according to the U.S. intelligence, 2,500 drones uh, were um deployed by Iran to Russia. So I think we are to expect 
quite an active and brutal war that's about to descend on Ukraine, let alone all the build-up of troops in Belarus and perhaps potentially uh, another attack on Kyiv. Uh, James, just before we move off this one and look at a, a wider story involving Russia, another one of today's developments was, of course, President Putin's declaration of martial law in those four Ukrainian oblasts which Russia has uh, annexed to Kherson, Luhansk, Donetsk and Zaporizhia. Uh, you have some experience of living under Russian martial law. Um, does does it tell us anything? I mean, is this declaration going to make any difference to anything? I think probably, possibly not in an active war zone. My experience, such as it was, was actually a curfew that was imposed in Moscow in 1993 after um, then-President Yeltsin had sent um, the army against his armed mm. opponents who, who were seeking to remove him from power. And what it meant was that you weren't allowed to go out on the street between 10pm uh, and 6am. Uh, and on that occasion, because I was a journalist, I had a pass, but I was stopped a couple of times by rather nervous young patrols. My pass was in my wallet, possibly not the best place to take it, so I had to stand with my hands up and say to the soldiers, it's in there and take it out. I'm pleased to say that I, as one did in Moscow in those days, I carried quite a lot of US dollars in cash around with me most of the time. None of it was taken. But obviously, you know, in an active war zone, when people are much more nervous, I would have thought that the possibility of, um, of abuses against civilians are increased by the imposition of martial law. Well, let's look at that wider story, because one consequence of Russia getting its army smashed up and its attention consumed by its misadventure in Ukraine is that it is less able than previously to throw its weight around elsewhere. And that, it turns out, may prove actually a mixed blessing. It is a month or so since hundreds of people were killed and injured in fighting between Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan in a dramatic deterioration of their perennial squabbling over the border between the two former Soviet republics. Though a ceasefire now seems to be holding, Kyrgyzstan has asked the Russian-led Collective Security Treaty Organization to send peacekeeping troops. And so far, President Vladimir Putin has offered them Soviet archive maps. Um, James, first of all, is there potentially actually a relationship between Russia being consumed by Ukraine and a thing like this kicking off again? Possibly, uh, because, you know, you know, it's hard to suppose in a way that... Uh, you know, the Russia-Ukraine war is about borders. It's about mm. where Russia sees them and where Ukraine sees that they were established at the end of the Soviet Union in 1991. And this, too, is a border dispute that would not have emerged in the time of the Soviet Union because these were constituent republics of the Soviet Union. Quite what... Um, the people have called on the Collective Security Treaty Organization to act are expecting, given Russia's um, uh, situation and the fact that it's had to mobilize in a way that we probably never foresaw it would have to do six or eight months ago. Quite what they're expecting is another matter. But it does, I think, reinforce this idea that Russia, even if it is, you know, the largest and most powerful military in the region, is not necessarily in a position to carry out any policing operations or to or to uh, you know or peacekeeping operations of the kind which uh, as in georgia actually has previously used as a, as a pretext for occupying land uh, uh, it, well you, you say that russia is the the preeminent military power in the region and indeed it's quite a drop off to second place because I, yeah. I, I i ran the numbers on this and if russia can't send peacekeepers then kyrgyzstan and tajikistan are going to end up asking armenia belarus or kazakhstan and i don't think that's going to quite do the trick but um Alena, i'm sure that this is very very far from the top of uh, ukraine's list of concerns but could things like this start to become more common around russia's fringes obvious example 
in an echo of Ukraine, might Georgia start thinking, well, here's our chance to get South Ossetia and Abkhazia back? Mm. Well, this is actually very interesting for Ukraine because the change of dynamics in the so-called CIS region, and I now call it CIS because it's clearly crumbling (laughs) with so many countries leaving that, and the uh, infamous CSTO, uh, which was meant to kind of duplicate NATO in in Central Asia and and around Russia. Um, The alliances are clearly suffering at the moment. And even though short term, it's quite troubling of what's happening between those countries. But long term, especially for Ukraine, I think it's very useful to see. I have many friends in Central Asia, in Caucasus, in all those countries that used to be part of Soviet Union, and all of them, even the ones who are not publicly speaking up for Ukraine, who are not perhaps even voting in the favor of Ukraine at the UN General Assembly. They're all saying, look, we're looking towards you, to to hoping that you will win against Russia, and then we will know that this is our turn to go. It's somewhat a cowardly position, sure, but perhaps they don't have the level of um, that consciousness that Ukrainians have grown into. But nonetheless, it's a very positive tendency. And I think with all of those countries having been obligated to contribute so much to uh, Russian effort in this war and their status of power, I think now demanding something back and not getting it will also trigger quite a lot of things. We've already seen Armenia threatening to leave CSTO, even though the Armenian Prime Minister is currently chairing the organization. Uh, We've seen Kazakhstan speak out about them being unhappy about general tendencies in the region. I'm not so sure about Georgia. The people of Georgia are beautiful, and they've inspired Ukrainians uh, once upon a time before our very first Orange Revolution in 2004 Mm. to Mm. go for it um, after their Revolution of Roses. I don't know how willing they are now, because last time I spoke to my friends there, they were saying, look, they're 20 kilometers away from the capital. We can't possibly risk it. You know, it takes, again, not to say that Ukrainians are amazing, but it takes a certain level of courage, which I guess when you're not forced back into the corner the way Ukrainians did, you can't really take those steps. But it's certainly a start to something in the region, and we should watch it closely. Uh, James, a final quick thought on this one. Um, We did also see this week that Ukraine's parliament certainly has not lost its sense of humour despite everything and voted unanimously to recognise the sovereignty of Chechnya. Now, it's, it's not difficult to see what they were doing there, but all gags aside, is it possible that in extremists we could start to see more secessionist agitation from within Russia itself, from Kakassia, Udmurtia, Ingusetia, Tatarstan? There's no shortage. Yeah, I mean, Chechnya is an interesting case, obviously, because in effect, in effect, after their wars for independence or separatism in the 1990s, I think, you know, if you look at it now, Chechnya has pretty much got what it wants, actually. Mm. I mean, it's very, very difficult to imagine how an independent Chechnya would look different from Chechnya as it is, when it, as it is within the Russian Federation. Uh, in a, you know, we have uh, the son of a former rebel fighter who's president there. We've been talking about president for life, perhaps. You know, he will be president for life. And, of course, we've seen Chechen units serving with the Russian army, but that's because it suits them to do so. So um, I think Chechnya is probably fairly happy where it is, but and I don't know if there's the appetite among other parts of the Russian Federation to secede, because a lot of them, as we've seen from... 
where men are being drafted into the army are in an extremely poor economic state. Mm. And it's not clear, you know, they've, they've done rather well out of rising oil prices over the last 15 years or so, to, to put it bluntly. You know, the Russian state budget has provided social services where they were absent in the 1990s. Um, so, but of course, you know, we have also seen protests at recruitment offices in, mm. those, in those regions. So that may take on a political tinge eventually. James and Aliona, thank you both for the moment. We will have more from you both shortly. As of tomorrow, Art Basel's new Paris variant, Paris Plus Par Art Basel, gets properly underway at the Grand Palais Ephemer. Paris Plus Par Art Basel looms as something of an escalation in an arms race, or if you will, an arts race. The new fair has toppled from its perch the previous biggest Parisian art fair, FIAC, which has been deprived of its October slot and its long-standing partnership with the Grand Palais. Well, I'm joined with more by Monocle's Annabelle Chapman. Annabelle, what kind of future does FIAC now have? Is it going to attempt to reclaim its position from Art Basel? Well, the future of FIAC um, looks still uh, vague at the moment, but it is true that the new organisers of the Paris Plus event are emphasising the continuity with um, FIAC. So it's not a revolution, it's something new, but also something familiar. Are we seeing, though, in general, France attempting to reposition itself as the centre of the world art trade? Definitely, there seems to be a renaissance at the moment in Paris with this event and more generally after the pandemic and also in the wake of Brexit with Paris trying to reclaim its legacy as a centre of the art world. You you mentioned Brexit and obviously just here in London recently we had the Freeze Art Fair. Is there a sense of competition among these art fairs to try and outdo each other to be bigger than each other or is it actually a relatively cooperative sort of space? I think there's overlap and in the past perhaps some people would have gone to one or the other but now I'm seeing an attempt here to really sort of give the Paris Plus event a sort of French but also broader international profile. I mean art fairs generally this was a concern raised ahead of freeze worried with a cost of living crisis looming that people might be more concerned with spending money on you know relative fripperies like food and heating rather than artworks and it's perhaps arguable that the kind of people who go to art fairs are not necessarily the people most worried by cost of living crises but has there been any evidence of general economic gloom reflected in the art market? I mean what you say is definitely true about the general general situation and the sentiment but here at um, Paris Plus the crowd is very international you know people from America from different parts of the world um, with a big interest in seeing and potentially buying the art so there really does seem to be a lot of excitement here about the art and I mean, the prospect of buying it. Can you give us some sense of the event itself? If, if you go to Paris Plus, what can you actually see? What does the environment look like? So um, the location is the Grand Palais Ephemer, which is a temporary venue um, set up to host this kind of event while the Grand Palais is being renovated. It's right by the Eiffel Tower with a huge exhibition space with over 150 galleries, roughly 30% of which are Parisian or French galleries. And just as a a final thought or a final encouragement for people who might be thinking about going along while they can, what are the headline attractions? So apart from the chance to meet the galleries and look at all these works of art, there's the programme involves their private visits of different museums in Paris and also conversations that bring together critics, curators, gallerists from around um, Paris and beyond. 
Annabelle Chapman, thank you for joining us. You are listening to The Daily. Still with me are James Rogers and Alona Hlivko. Now, it has long been the case that failing to acknowledge Japan as a serious military power has been a mistake. Though bound by its post-war constitution to pacifism and obliged to describe its military by the ostentatious overcompensation self-defence forces, Japan has a navy arguably more powerful than France's or the UK's, the world's ninth biggest air force, and perhaps 250,000 troops under arms. Japan now hopes to expand this further, planning over the next five years its biggest military build-up since World War II. Uh, James, is this entirely about China? It looks like it's a large extent. It's about China and about Japan feeling secure within the region, particularly uh, as far as shipping passing close Mm. to Taiwan is concerned. I think because Japan relies on a lot of, uh, particularly its oil coming through there. Um, And uh, obviously there's been a lot of speculation. We've been talking about Ukraine a lot this evening that uh, China is watching how things proceed in Ukraine uh, and may therefore decide at some point in the next few years to make a move against Taiwan. So yes, I think the short answer to your question is is almost exclusively yes. Because Alona, it is weird, isn't it, how linked those two scenarios have now become. Mm. Since Russia attacked Ukraine, there has been an awful lot more talk and speculation about China's intentions towards Taiwan and whether or not Taiwan could actually do it and how the world would react. Do you think Japan is reacting to that? I think Japan is acting as a global power in the region, um, and it's somewhat surreal seeing how the world has changed since Mm. the Second World War. Mm. Um, As you rightly say, now Germany is arming allies in Europe, and Japan is trying to arm itself to protect the the Indo-Pacific and the Asian region. And even though the parallels have been drawn quite a lot, and... um, I am friends with Taiwanese um, here in London, especially their representative office, and we met and talked about this um, many times, about how Ukraine and Taiwan are in very similar positions because Mm. we have an aggressive, very powerful neighbor that we need to stand up to. And that was before the full-blown war that started in February. Um, The situations are not identical. It's important to understand Mm. that um, there can be... Um, certain analogies can be drawn, but the situations are not identical. And I think China will conduct itself very differently to Russia simply because it's smarter. (laughs) Um, And um, Taiwan is in a somewhat stronger position because it has almost biggest uh, support from the Western allies due to the supply chain issues and everything they can provide for the world. But the fact that Japan is trying to reiterate its power in the region and to deter China from from even thinking about it, along with other allies, um, I'm sure Australia as well, and the UK within the AUKUS deal with the US. Um, it's definitely a trajectory that the modern world is, is taking. Uh, James, a pet project of Japan's late Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was the rewriting or perhaps even expunging of Article 9 of Japan's constitution, which does commit it to pacifism. Was he, was he wrong to want to redraw that? 
No, I mean, I think as Eliana has been saying, you know, the world has changed and we've seen in Europe over the last six months the final end of a lot of things that were established uh, in the period after the Second World War. Mm. And I think the same is true of that part of the world too. You know, you gave the... Uh, the name of the Japanese army, you know, chosen for the reason that it was to demilitarize the country after the Second World War. And that era is very, very far in the past in the terms of international relations now. So uh, sadly, the answer is probably not. I mean, I think it's difficult to foresee Japan probably actually entering an active conflict against China over this for the simple reason that China is much larger than it. But it is a reminder that, you know, that China, that Japan is, is, is changing the way that it looks at the situation in the region uh, and responding accordingly. Uh, it is interesting, though, Alona, that polls still tell us that a lot of Japanese people are not at all keen on the idea of altering the constitution and the, the shackles that it imposes upon Japan. A, a measure of recent polling I was able to get suggests that maybe about 47% are against, 43% are for changing it, and that leaves us with, if I'm doing the maths right, about 10% who either don't care or can't make their minds up. But are you surprised by how big or how large that sense, I guess, of nervousness, squeamishness still is. And I think it exists in Germany as well, still, yes. about the idea of being an actual military power again. Indeed. I think um, Japanese society, going by my very limited knowledge of it, is very conservative. And certainly they've gone, the, the whole generation, if not two, have gone through this whole educational process of we need to be pacifists, we've done some terrible things, we started or joined the war. And I spoke to many German um, people who were saying we went to school and we were being mm. told that we're responsible for these terrible things and we should never ever militarize ourselves. And yet we're seeing now that the German government is going on, on rebuilding its army from scratch and sending... Uh, weapons to Ukraine and supporting it militarily. Same goes for Japan. I think it will take some time, especially with very, again, conservative Japanese people, but they will grow into it seeing the challenges that they will have to face in the region. Well, turning now to something entirely more trivial, a poll by some or other attention-seeking entity hoping to leverage the desire of media outlets to fill space for coverage of whatever it is they do suggests that British people by and large abandon any pretense at being trendy by the age of 35. And no, we are not naming the people who conducted this poll, so who's the idiot? Delving further into this doubtless meticulously calibrated research, we learn that 58% of people feel too old for some styles which may explain the 42% of males over 17 who still wear shorts in public, and that 37% felt generally overwhelmed, it says here, by fashion. Um, Alona, first of all, obviously the concerns of people over the age of 35 could not be something that you have any interest in whatsoever, <laughs> but um, how do you anticipate feeling at that point? I think I styled that out nicely. Uh, well, Andrew, that was very politically correct and, and gentlemanly of you. And I was wondering, when you were when you were saying, we're not going to name who's conducted the poll, I thought you were going to say, we're not going to name who's the 35-year-old woman in the studio. <laughs> Which, thank you very much, if that's your way of hinting that my style has degraded somewhat <laughs> in the last few months that you've known me. Um, I think I can concur with that statement. And it's not so much about fashion. I would still hope and love to believe that I've got style that's now authentically mine. Mm -hmm. And I don't feel like I need to chase fashion anymore. 
and necessarily fall for all the trends because quite frankly, and I was thinking to myself, has it been the fashion that's gone down or am I just getting old and grumpy and I don't like anything that's being created these days? It is a balance though, but I think you have hit something right there because one of, I think the consolations of of getting older it may, it may just be getting grouchy and grumpy and developing a psychopathic disregard for the rest of humanity but there is also that thing of just thinking you know what i, I like the things i like and mm. when and having the confidence when something allegedly fashionable is thrust into your view to be able to say nope not interested don't like it don't want it uh, james uh, you are of course resplendent as ever uh, in a three-piece suit bowler hat and spats as mm. as before as, 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 as befits, gentleman of a certain as age, yeah. a British gentleman <laughs> of a certain age. Um, what what do you think? Have you had this process? Have you at some point in the last decade or so? I don't know put on a leather jacket, taken a look in the mirror and gone, no, I think that ship has sailed. Um, I, I have to say that I find having teenage daughters largely performs <laughs> that function for me. Um, uh, they they I, will let you know, will they'll they? Let, oh, they do. Believe yeah. me, they do. Um, but I, I am, a, a, despite the, uh, the, the, the condition that you placed, Andrew, at the beginning of the item, I'm going to name Professor Carolyn Mayer, who's uh, one of the authors of the study and also name the Times newspaper who did take the bait, as you suggested, and say that I do draw a certain degree of comfort from it says clothing reflects and conveys many aspects of the wearer including their self-image image mood aspirations and group membership and i am delighted to say that as a middle-aged le- a mid- university lecturer i am here resplendent in a tweed jacket this evening so i think that probably does, does reflect my uh, group <laughs> I, I, membership. i am deducting your point for the lack of elbow patches uh, however there is that it yeah. is new enough not to have elbow patches at least I mean, basically what we're saying to you andrew here is we're extremely stylish well yeah, I, I i wouldn't dispute it for a second but but alone do, do you think there actually are for all that we've been saying that the the good thing about getting older is that you stop really caring what anybody else thinks or what's supposed to be fashionable, but are there rules you think people should adhere to or perhaps even constraints people should impose upon themselves as they get older? Mm, I think it's more about losing the will to experiment as mm. much mm. and maybe not being entertained by that. That might turn into being a boring old person but if if that's the case then fine when it comes to the rules i don't necessarily think that if the person can be adventurous and explorative in in that sense and you know still discover themselves because we're we're only young until we learn new things including our own styles and, and various adventures and outfits so i would only applaud that so you're saying I should keep the green mohawk? Is 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 is, is what I'm a hundred percent is what I'm hearing there, <laughs> um, James? Do we think this is though a, a corollary, corollary? Why do I keep trying to say that word on the radio? It never ever goes well. <laughs> do you think this is an, a, a tributary, an adjunct, if you will, of the rule which I think also stands up in thirty five? is about the key age past that age you start deciding all modern music is terrible yes i think well i think that's probably true i, I, I mean again you know i, I like to, I, I have do listen to lots of you know new music or new styles of music at least i continue to try to learn from that um hairstyles thankfully have been taken away from me <laughs> i've had an awful lot of different ones in my time you know uh including experimenting with green i used to have uh, you had green hair well briefly yes Amazing. i actually had long thick red hair actually back in the day but uh, as, as listeners probably can't tell obviously but they will say uh, i think my phrase that hairstyles are something i no longer experiment <laughs> with will probably explain that was, was, the, was there ever a mul- there wasn't no i maintain no. there wasn't shame shame <laughs> I, I i am i am just 
distressed to hear that. Uh, uh, and alone, you're just finally on this. Have you reached the point where music is concerned of thinking, I can't understand the lyrics, there's never a tune you can whistle, I can remember when good music was popular and popular music was good? Uh, if only that happened this year when I turned 35. I think I've reached that point at least five years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Elona Livko and James Rogers, thank you both for joining us. And finally on today's show, while lesser broadcasters are already unleashing the lacrimose carols and general inane bonhomie traditional at this ghastly time of year, it falls to Monocle 24 to relay the grim truth, which is that Santa Claus is dead. Proof where it needed has been discovered in Turkey, where archaeologists have found the actual tomb of St. Nicholas, the Greek mystic and weirdo whose legendary generosity inspired the fable of Father Christmas. Now, I'm joined with more by Petri Burtsoff, Monocle's Helsinki correspondent and Santologist. Um, Petri, first of all, as regular listeners will be aware, Finland is dogmatically keen on claiming Father Christmas as a citizen of its own country. Why is he buried in Turkey? That is a very good question. Um, I, 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 um, I've been reading this uh, rather sacrilegious statement uh, uh, on, on various uh, websites today my, myself, and I, I just can't my, wrap my head around it, because as we all know, Santa Claus <laughs> is alive and well, and he lives in the Finnish Lapland. I, I was just in his hometown of Rovaniemi, actually, last week. I didn't have time. He, he was rather busy. Um, I didn't have time to meet him, but I have met him on various occasions before. I know he's been a visitor to Monaco's Christmas markets in, in, in Zurich and in, in London, you know, and speaks very much with a Finnish accent, not with a Turkish one, um, as, as, <laughs> as you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, we can just put this rumors of him being dead aside and and you know we all know he's alive and well so are you suggesting petri that the the personage in this tomb in turkey is an imposter of some sort yeah maybe we should go and check the tomb again maybe he disappeared like some other historic figure who knows who knows but all 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 joking aside i mean Finns do acknowledge that there are various imposters who uh, you know lay claim to be the the true Santa Claus. I, I know that uh, some people believe uh, erroneously, of course, that he resides in Greenland. Uh, Sweden, you know, Swedish people, you know, they have the nerve. They they believe he resides in Swedish Lapland. Why? That you know beats me. But um, but yeah. But I, I mean, this is a massive, of course, tourism boom boost for uh, for Finland. The, having Santa Claus reside in Lapland, I think Lapland gets around three million visitors a year and um, you know why else would they travel to to that dark <laughs> dark dark place if it wasn't for the for the for the Santa Claus so you know we we really do hope that he's not dead. Uh, Petri, I will come back to you shortly. You can just seethe a bit at those rival claims for a second. But Alona, I want to bring you in on this for two reasons. One is that St. Nicholas is, all jokes aside, an extremely big deal in Ukraine. And also, you have actually been to the place where this tomb has been discovered. I have indeed. Uh, when I was on one of my holidays in Turkey, which is a common thing for a Ukrainian to do, um, we did go to a little town where he lived and served. And that was the time when I found the terrible truth that he didn't <laughs> live in any of the countries named earlier. But he was actually essentially Turkish, but Byzantine Empire back in the day. Um, he is a, a very um, strong patron saint in Ukraine so we honor him deep deeply and I guess going in and seeing where he served and and everything he did 
um, serves as a great inspiration for any Ukrainian. So yes, I'm I'm afraid I'll have to say he is dead, but but as a true Christian and Orthodox, I will say he still presides on heaven and watches over us. <laughs> uh, and Petri, to come back to you finally, how is Finnish media uh, taking this revelation of the discovery of this tomb? Uh, I checked today, and there is absolute zero mention of this. So, so we, we we just we just try to live as if uh, this news was never 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 told. But uh, let let's see how many people listen to this broadcast broadcast, and maybe it's big news after this. Petri Bertsov in Helsinki and apparently in denial. Thank you for joining us. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists, Alona Livko and James Rogers, also to Annabelle Chapman. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb and researched by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Our sound engineer was Adam Heaton with assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thank you for listening.